I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, this is a joyous time for Christians and an unusual time, in a sense, for Christians living in a post-Christian culture, and that is because Christmas, the season of Christmas, which is certainly a holiday focused on Christian theological truths, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is also interestingly celebrated by non-Christians, and you really can't escape it. It seems to start earlier and earlier every year. Christmas lights go up, Christmas trees go up, and you get the inevitable 12 Days of Christmas reference. There's 12 Days of Christmas contests on the radio, 12 Days of Christmas sales at the mall, 12 Days of Christmas charity drives, and, and of course that very long song. But most people in America at least, seem to assume that these infamous 12 days describe those leading up to Christmas Day. And that's evidenced by those contests and sales, which usually occur in the 12 days leading up to December 25th. And yet, it is actually that very factor, the American marketing machine, that has led to really what is an erroneous labeling of December 14th to December 25th as the 12 days of Christmas. For retail businesses, December 25th really marks the end of the Christmas season. You hit December 25th, and the lights come down, the decorations come down, all the sales end. However, in the Christian tradition, the 12 days actually refer to the celebration of Christ's nativity, also sometimes called Christmastide, but it's a celebration of Christ's nativity between Christmas, December 25th, and Epiphany. January 6th, the day that celebrates the visit of the Magi. That's why the evening of January 5th is called Twelfth Night. It's the twelfth day of Christmas. It's made famous, of course, by William Shakespeare's play of that title. But the days preceding Christmas, four weeks to be exact, are more traditionally referred to as Advent. Not the twelve days of Christmas. Advent. The time in which Christians anticipate both the first and second comings of Jesus to earth. In the historic tradition, Christians don't really actually celebrate or even sing about Christ's birth until Christmas Eve. And then they continue to sing about and celebrate the nativity for the 12 festival days of the season following December 25th. You know, I always find it ironic when I hear Christians in America state with conviction and often a little bit of piety that they won't be tied down by Catholic traditions like the church calendar. And yet, through their actual practices, we often prove to be constrained by a liturgical calendar of another sort, the liturgical calendar of American commercialism. So sometimes we insist we won't celebrate Epiphany, or the baptism of Christ, or Palm Sunday, or Holy Week, or Eastertide, or Pentecost, or Ascension Day, or or Advent, or the traditional 12 days of Christmas. And yet instead, often our churches celebrate New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, Easter Bunny Day, Mother's Day, Memorial Day, Father's Day, Independence Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and a Christmas season stretching from Thanksgiving to Christmas Day. With customs rooted not in biblical events or the life of Christ or Christian tradition, but in the tradition of American commercialism. Now let me be clear, there's no biblical mandate to celebrate the church year. And if someone chooses not to follow the traditional church calendar, 
I'm not going to insist they must. I will, however, just note that I believe that even one who holds to a very strict regulative principle, meaning we're going to limit what we do in our corporate worship to that which the Bible explicitly commands, even someone who holds to that kind of principle, I still think can find benefit in using the Protestant church here, as long as we don't add to our worship any elements not prescribed by Scripture. There's certainly nothing wrong with making the hymns and the scripture readings and the sermon of the day center around the theme of Christ's incarnation, for example. And by the way, there's a really good article about this on religiousaffections.org by Kevin Bowder called Shall We Observe Holidays? If you just go to religiousaffections.org and use the search function to look for that article, you can find it there. But nevertheless, it really doesn't concern me whether a Christian celebrates Christmas during the days preceding December 25th or the 12 days following. That's not my point. Yet how Christians do celebrate seasons like Christmas does reveal what most influences them. And as I often tell my students, it is impossible to avoid being influenced by some tradition. The question is, which tradition most influences your practice? That of the historic Christian church or that of American commercialism. Now, one thing I think we all can agree on is that this season is a wonderful season for singing great theologically rich hymns about the incarnation of our Savior. And as I mentioned earlier, really this time, preceding December 25th, historically, is Advent, the celebration not just of the anticipation of Christ's first coming, but really a focus even more than that on the second coming of Christ. There are many wonderful hymns to sing during this season. And by the way, be on the lookout in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be starting a new feature of this podcast that I'm calling The Songs of Zion. They're going to be short three to five minute uh, podcast episodes simply focusing on wonderful hymns of our faith. One of those Advent hymns that I'd like to highlight for you today is a hymn called Savior of the Nations Come. This is one of the oldest hymns that we still commonly sing today, older than even a hymn that maybe is more familiar to you, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is even older and, and perhaps lesser known, but just as worthy of singing today. The text is attributed to the father of Latin hymnody, Ambrose of Milan, in the 4th century. And then later, Martin Luther translated the hymn into German in 1523, and then William M. Reynolds translated Luther's German into English in 1880. The tune that we often sing to it today, Nun komm der Eiden Heiland, is from one of Luther's hymn collections in 1524, a wonderful hymn that focuses our attention upon the advent of Christ. The first stanza reads, Savior of the nations come, virgin son, make here thy home. Marvel now, O heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth. So an Advent hymn that anticipates his first coming, and I highly recommend it to you. I encourage you to go to classichymns.org and scroll down to Savior of the Nations Come, where you can download free PDFs of this hymn. Now, as I alluded to earlier, there are some who choose not to celebrate Advent or the Christmas season. I certainly respect that if someone chooses not to. But sometimes Christians don't celebrate the season because they believe that much of the Christmas season has its roots in pagan worship traditions. They argue that early Roman Catholics merged their Christmas celebration with already established pagan feasts, 
sort of compromising with pagans in order to pacify them and maintain peace in the empire. Now, even if that were true, I don't think that would necessarily discredit celebrating Christ's birth on December 25th, as I mentioned earlier. We certainly should celebrate and remember the incarnation of Christ, and why not do it during this time of year? But even so, there really is very little concrete evidence to support the claim that the Christian practice of celebrating the birth of Christ in December comes from a compromise with pagan traditions. Now, it's true that Christians didn't necessarily formally celebrate the birth of Christ until about the 4th century. The only significant event that the early believers celebrated was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes sense. But evidence suggests that a more calculated decision to celebrate Christ's birth on December 25th than simply compromising with a pagan festival is what led Christians to do so. In fact, some would argue that many Christians settled on December 25th as the birth of Christ before the formal pagan festival was instituted by Emperor Aurelian in 274. But whether the Christian celebration or the pagan festival came first, no one can argue with the fact that the celebration of Christ's birth eventually, in the Middle Ages, degraded into a raucous festival of drinking and revelry. In fact, after the Protestant Reformation, many Protestant believers were so concerned with what the Christmas celebration had become that they banned the festival altogether. Christmas was outlawed in England in 1645 under Oliver Cromwell, but then was later reinstated when Charles II was restored to the throne. Strong Puritans in early America outlawed Christmas from 1659 to 1681. Anyone caught celebrating Christmas was fined five shillings. This this rejection of Christmas in early America actually helped the revolutionary troops when George Washington attacked Hessian soldiers in Trenton, New Jersey after crossing the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. Washington's troops surprised the German soldiers who made a very big deal of Christmas and were engaged in drunken celebration of the event. And then later, after the Revolutionary War, Americans were especially suspicious of any English traditions. In fact, Congress was in session on December 25, 1789, the first Christmas under America's new constitution. But that all changed in the early 19th century. During that time, unemployment was high, Gang rioting often occurred during the December Christmas season. Class conflict was at its peak in America, and the lower classes would often stage violent protests during that time of year. And all of those disturbances during Christmas motivated certain members of the upper class of American society to begin to change the way Christmas was celebrated in America. In 1819, American author Washington Irving published The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Cran, a series of stories about the celebration of Christmas in an English manor house. But in those stories, Irving literally invented Christian traditions. He portrayed this English squire as a kind man who invited peasants into his home for a quote-unquote traditional Christmas celebration, but Irving actually invented a lot of those traditions. And also during that same time, English author Charles Dickens penned A Christmas Carol, that classic holiday story which emphasizes kindness and giving to all. And so with those publications, Americans sort of reinvented Christmas and transformed it from what was once a disorderly day of drunken indulgence 
into a family-centered day of giving and nostalgia. So those sentiments have characterized the Christmas season ever since that time, but unfortunately, of course, commercialism and greed have often crept in and poisoned much of the good. Another one of the staple traditions of Christmas observance is the decoration of the evergreen tree. And although this seems to be one of the more accepted customs for Christians, it is nevertheless rejected by some for many of the same reasons that they spurn the celebration of the holiday itself. Similar to arguments against Christmas celebration, controversy surrounding the Christmas tree almost always includes an insistence that trees were objects of pagan worship in winter solstice festivals. However, trees have always had special significance for Christians, and most of the traditions connected with the Christmas tree today began actually as Christian customs. In the Middle Ages, for example, about the 11th century, religious theater was born to help the illiterate masses understand the truths of Scripture, and one of the most popular plays concerned Adam and Eve, their fall and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was represented by a fir tree hung with apples. It represented both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the play ended with the prophecy of the coming Savior, and so it was often enacted during the Christmas season. But that one piece of scenery, the paradise tree, became a popular object and was often set up in Christian homes. It became a symbol of the Savior, since the tree represented not only paradise and man's fall, but also the promise of salvation. It was hung not merely with apples, but also with bread and wafers representing the crucified body of Christ, and often sweets representing the sweetness of redemption. And then later, the wafers were replaced by little pieces of pastry cut into the shapes of stars and angels and hearts and flowers and bells. And eventually, other cookies were introduced uh, bearing other shapes. And actually, Martin Luther was the first to add lighted candles to a tree to recreate the beauty of stars twinkling amidst the evergreens. And all of those things really started as Christian traditions. Well, this time of year is a time for singing, as we've said, and want to let you know about a great resource for you, especially if you and your family or your church uh, enjoy caroling at Christmas. Last year, we published a collection of hymns and carols for Advent and Christmas. It's simply all of the Advent and Christmas hymns included in our hymnal, Hymns to the Living God, but it's published in a format convenient for caroling or for home gatherings or even church services. If you go to religiousaffections.org, you can find this collection of hymns for Advent and Christmas. There's a PDF version that you can download for free. There's a Kindle version. And then on Amazon, you can purchase the softcover version as well. Well, no matter how you celebrate this time of year, this is certainly a time of year when we can reflect upon the advent of our Lord and the redemption that comes through faith in him. One of the most popular Advent Christmas hymns, even among unbelievers, is Joy to the World, written by English pastor Isaac Watts. You can't walk into many malls or eat at many restaurants during the month of December without hearing that song. But one of the interesting questions raised by the hymn is whether it refers to the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. Well, first, a little context. Watts published this hymn in a collection that he called The Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament and Applied to the Christian State and Worship. 
And as that title indicates, Watts published this collection as his attempt to sort of Christianize the Psalms so that Christians could sing them with the full revelation of the New Testament, the full revelation of Jesus Christ in view. Joy to the World is part two of Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98. He titled the hymn, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. Verse 4 of Psalm 98 reads this way. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. You can see where joy to the world comes from. It continues, break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. You can hear the language of joy to the world in this psalm. The world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, now here's the key phrase, for he comes. So there's the Advent focus. For he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now most scholars view this psalm, Psalm 98, as messianic, as Watts clearly did. They note the references to the coming of the Lord. This coming brings salvation, this coming brings judgment, and it results in joyous praise through singing and instruments, and even all creation rejoices. Now, when you compare Watts' hymn with the psalm on which it is based, it raises several important clues as to which advent Watts had in view. The psalm itself just says the Lord comes. It doesn't necessarily give any indication as to which advent it presents. But notice that in Watts' hymn, he uses phrases in this imitation that are actually not in Psalm 98. For example, Watts says that when Christ comes in the manner of Psalm 98, sins and sorrows will no more grow and thorns will no longer infest the ground. Well, when does that happen? Did that happen at his first coming? Or does it happen at his second coming? In the same way, Christ did not abolish the curse at his first coming. And the curse is not ended yet, as Watts's version of Psalm 98, his Christianization of the psalm, says. The fact that these kinds of universal blessings that Watts highlights, that are really additions to Psalm 98, have not yet occurred, seems to indicate that Watts sees them as future reality. And so this popular Christmas hymn, is actually a hymn that refers to Christ's second coming. But it's not inappropriate to sing Joy to the World during this time of year. In fact, it's very appropriate. As I've mentioned already, the four weeks preceding Christmas, Advent, not only remember and anticipate Christ's incarnation, they also anticipate his second coming to earth. That time at which full salvation and judgment will come, all the earth will rejoice, and his many blessings will extend far as the curse is found. And may that day come quickly. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services, and if you enjoy the podcast, please do give us a rating there. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm.